out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the guitarist and songwriter. It is the one and only Tommy Stinson, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry and much more. Anyway, one of the original members of The Replacements went on to a prolific solo career, as well as working with bands such as Guns N' Roses and Soul Asylum, was in other bands including Bash and Pop and Perfect, and has a new solo album that has just come out, well, quite recently, which also features on guitar Chip Roberts. The album is titled Cowboys in the Campfire. Available from all good record shops and also probably online. I will give you the link in the notes below. But this is the interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject was the for early formative years. Tommy, it's over to you. Wow. You know, you know, I, I used to sleep, I used to sleep with the AM radio on in my closet when I was a kid. Um as far back as I can remember and had the oldie station on. So anything that was popular from the late fifties to the sixties is what the radio station would be playing. I always had it in my closet with the door open. So I could always hear it when I was going to sleep at night. I don't know exactly why I did that, except that it, I, I liked it for whatever reason. And um, really, I think, you know, when my brother came home from, you know, he was, he was kind of put in a boys reform situation for a couple of years there when i was like 10 i think when i came out of that i think he came home and got turned on to like johnny winter right and, you know and a lot of that sort of blues rock stuff uh and and things like yes <laughs> you know like i'm 10 11 years old i'm talking about here listening to like yes records and you know all this uh prog rock stuff but it really wasn't until um, I met my little, my buddy, David Roth, not the David Lee Roth, but David Roth, um, this little friend of mine that I had in high school at where I got turned on to punk rock. He had, been right. to England, he had been to England with his family at an early age and got turned on to punk rock when he was over there with his sisters and family and stuff. So he kind of turned me on to like the clash and, you know, other things of that nature, uh, the jam and stuff like that. Probably when I was 12, I suppose, 12, 13 in there. Yes. And, uh, and I was already playing bass with the replacement. So all this stuff was all kind of new to me. Um, and I think my first real, you know, my first real, um, you know, record purchase that I got turned on to really would have been London Calling. Right. A classic, yeah. a classic of our time. Were your parents yeah. at all musical or, or had some cultural interest in life? Not really. I mean, my mom, my mom had a bunch of, you know, had interest in like country music, like Conway Twitty, Elvis Presley was one of her favorites. Um, right. And she wasn't a Beatles fan. She was a, um, uh, she was a Beach Boys fan. Right. You know, we kind of, we lived, we lived in um, San Diego, California until I was about six months old or so. But, you know, my mom had spent enough time in, San, in the San Diego area that that was really her thing. She wasn't a Beatles fan, but like Beach Boys. Right. And, um, so growing up, you know, her record collection really was, you know, just kind of country music and stuff. So yes, I mean, interesting. Yeah. And what was what about your dad? Was he ever into music? Did he ever sort of have any passion? I didn't have him around. He uh, we left him when I was probably six years old. We left him in Florida. 
Right. Um, yeah, he he was a rotten bastard, and uh, you know, died as such. <laughs> like grim, grim as that all is. That that yeah. is a slightly. But it's interesting because I I had a brother who was seven years older than me, and he was um he was ripe for for the prog rock world of you know yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash, Barkley James Harvest, all, all that, that kind stuff. of stuff. So yeah. I I used to sneak into his little room and used to get these records and play them when I was quite young, thinking, oh, this is fascinating, you know. And it, I I kind of I sort of I suppose I'd never heard anything like it before, and also being forbidden to listen to them was made made it even more interesting. So I do have yeah. a strange kind of. Um, Yes, uh, deeply embedded in my DNA is the work of Yes and Genesis for my oh, yeah. and All even the, and even the solo work of Rick Wakeman, which is quite bizarre. But um, <laughs> you know, it, I can't I can't get it out. It's just there for life. But uh, it's kind of interesting. So, what made you kind of want to play a guitar when you were about eleven? What What was the kind of catalyst for that moment? Well, my brother. You know, my brother saw me, you know, kind of manhandling his bass, um, his bass guitar. And he asked me if I wanted to play it. And I was like, sure. And we sat down and he showed me for a second. I was like, no, I don't want to do this. It hurts my fingers. So cut to him, you know, kind of making me play it. <laughs> he was like, no, you're going to play this. I'll buy you a candy bar. I'll buy you a Coke, you know, whatever. Sit and play. So he kind of bribed me in a way, you know, with, you know, snacks from the store and stuff like that. And 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 I got into it. He was per he he persevered. He I persevered. Yes. He pushed. He pushed. And um, you know, it got to a point where you know, okay, I started to get into it, and I started enjoying it. And and I think um, you know, it wasn't long before you know we were playing with other people in the neighborhood that you know we'd come across you know people in our neighborhood that were you know played instruments like Chris Mars you know the drummer for the replacements and stuff he lived a couple blocks away from us so pretty quickly we were you know here I am 11 I picked up the bass you know at 10 11 years old playing by the time I'm 12 with other people and you know jamming and playing parties and stuff 12 13 years old and uh playing kegger parties at that that you know you know outdoor backyard beer parties and stuff like that um at an early age, realizing, wow, people seem to really like this stuff that we're doing up here. So it made it kind of, it got into my head early on that, you know, the price of admission is, you know, people like what you're doing. So that's kind of fun. And so, you know, at an impressionable age of, you know, 12, 13 years old or whatever, it was kind of a, it was a, you know, I kind of, it kind of sewed the deal for me. It was a no-brainer, really, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, people it's like a... what I'm doing. That's cool. And it yes. got me out of all the, it, it, you know, it diverted my attention away from being the hoodlum that I was at that point. Because I'd already, I'd already been to jail three times by the time I was 10 before he came home and showed me how to play bass. So, you know, I was already in a bad path before that. So Yes. So wait a minute. You, did you say your brother had also gone to reform school and then? Yeah, yeah. They, he he got in some trouble early on when we moved up from Florida, and um, you know he tried to he tried to put sugar in my mom's boyfriend's gas tank of his car. He didn't like him. Didn't really like being in Minnesota either. But um, you know he uh, he acted out, and they threw they put him in the. Put him put him away for a couple of years. Yes, and and what yeah. was you and, and what was your kind of curious? What was your kind of uh, crimes that you you managed to commit? I was a hoodlum, you know. I was stealing shit, stealing bikes, breaking into houses, doing all kinds of stupid shit just to kind of you know, I guess 
killing time, finding something to do. Um, wasn't a whole lot of parenting happening in my household. No, they, 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 no, there you go. So did you manage to leave school at 16 or had you already flown that nest? You know, it was in the middle of my 10th grade. Yeah, 16 years old when I um, when I walked away from it. My mom had signed guardianship papers to our tour manager, manager friend, Peter Jesperson. And, I, you know, signed away basically to so that I could go across state lines with the band uh, at 16 years old. So. We did that. I dropped out in the middle of 10th grade and didn't look back. Yes. And, and during that period, it's kind of interesting music. I know this is a bit UK based, but, you know, we had that punk world, then post-punk. And then that kind of early 80s, there was bands like, I suppose, Simple Minds, U2, Big Country. In like 83, we suddenly had the Smiths, who were a massive part of my life. So were there yeah. any particular bands that you were thinking, you know, not copying, but slightly influenced by at that stage? You know, I, I pretty much during those years was kind of following suit with my buddy David Roth. And we were listening to, like I said, The Jam, The Clash, um, Buzzcocks, all of, all of the punk rock stuff from the you know, late 70s, early 80s. And then when it started to kind of veer off was when we met Peter Jesperson. Peter Jesperson was uh, sort of my musical guru, still is for all practical purposes, um, my musical guru. He uh, would turn me on to anybody. Thing from Bob Dylan to Captain Beefheart, you know, David Bowie to, you know, Kate Bush. I mean, just the whole spectrum of things, save for jazz music. He turned me on to everything um, uh, that was outside of what I was already into. And so I got influences pretty early on for things that way outside of the punk rock realm and that kind of thing. So I was pretty, it, you know, I had a pretty diversified, you know, musical sense that. 14 years old, 15 years old, I was kind of all over the place, you know, yes. and, um, was really getting into the, you know, not so much the, the idea of like punk rock or whatever, but more the into the music part of it rather than the aesthetic and the idea behind it and the, and all that. And what I really kind of gravitated towards was really, you know, just solid songwriting, you know, that kind of really was for the, the thing for me that I got yes, into early on. Absolutely. Because um, Peter was because he was the was he the owner of Twin Tone Records? He was one of them, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Right. He was. Was, and was that kind of a major sort of place in in sort of was it Minneapolis that you yeah. were? Yeah. So he worked at a he uh, Twin Tone Records was a small little little record company that had offices in Minneapolis, but he always worked also, you know, his day job was working at Orfolk Jokobus Records, which was where we brought our first demo tape to him and stuff. So, um, you know, that's kind of, there was a corner in Minneapolis called 26, 26th Street and Lindell Avenue where all this kind of, where all the musicians and everyone kind of converged, you know, at this one record store to buy their latest wares and, you know, get turned yes. on to new music. That's that's yes. Yeah. So because so, because that first because the first album you recorded opens with "Taking a Ride," doesn't it? Which yeah. is a, well, can you remember when that came together? Because that's a, an amazing song. It's got an urgency to it, hasn't it? Yeah, um, certainly. Um, you know, when when Paul you know joined the band, um, you know he was pretty ripe for you know wanting to write songs and stuff like that. He'd been playing around, kicking around with other people in the neighborhood before we got to him but um you know it wasn't long before he joined that joined our our band we kind of were already a band when he kind of joined us and we kind of 
you know, streamlined it down to him being the singer and the guitar player and stuff. And we're starting to write songs pretty much right out of the gate. I mean, we, I mean, Jeeps, uh, I can't even, it must have been 12 when we, you know, moved from one end of town to the other and we were already playing a lot of that first record, a lot of that stuff in the basement, you know, um, it all came by, it all came up pretty quick. Yes. Um, and was, did you feel that chemistry with the kind of the four of you? Yeah, we, we bonded pretty quick. And I think, you know, it was kind of, I think more at Paul's sort of, I mean, what he brought to the table was, you know, he kind of rallied us together in a way. Un, un, you know, in an unspoken sort of way. I think he, what we saw in him, I think, was just that he seemed to have his shit together and seemed to be kind of, you know, on a level of wanting to do something that we were kind of just getting into, like, yeah, we want to do this thing, we want to go out and play and, you know, play shows and be a band. So as soon as that came together, the songs just started to kind of flow out of him in a way. And, you know, and we would just hack him out, you know, yes. hack him out right there in the spot. We didn't, we didn't really, I mean, you know, I, I suppose there was lots of, lots of, you know, vocal takes, I suppose, in the studio. But a lot of the records that we did, we recorded pretty much live in the studio, except, you know, save for vocals because of the sound quality and stuff like that. We had to kind of overdub those things. But we uh, we didn't really <laughs> spend a whole lot, lot of time really monkeying around, it's, you know, not, not like people do today. I mean, no, kind of thing, I think when the chemistry is there and the stars have lined up, things do just happen without you really thinking about it until later on and wonder how it all happened. But yeah, it's just, you got, you got people growing quicker than others, you know, in that group. And I think there was, there was a lot of that happening. I think Kim and my brother and him really butted heads in a a positive way in a lot of things, you know, Um, I think that Bob had a hard time, you know, uh, wanting to give up the reins of the leader of the band kind of thing to him. But it was clear that Paul was a singer. He could play and write songs, and so he already brought that to the table. Yes, that, you know that that I think uh, you know he kind of led led us to where we ended up. And did you have a kind of curiosity when you saw people like Greg Nor- Norton sort of playing with Husker Du? Did did you, did you can you remember the first time you saw them play? You know, I, I do, and I wasn't wasn't really the hugest fan of them. And I, you know, you know, we all used to play together. We used to all just kind of hang out together, play together, go to same, you know, house parties and shit after shows and all that. Um, and there was, you know, someone was asking me about this recently. It was a really, the Minneapolis scene back then was very, very vibrant. Nothing like I've ever seen since, but, um, or there's nothing, I've seen nothing like it since is what I meant to say. There, um, all these bands with all these different influences and different, um, you know, flavors all kind of came together and fed off each other one way or the other. We would listen to each other and either, you know, get off on each other's music or just <laughs> go the opposite direction because we didn't like their music or whatever. But it was very vibrant and very much, um, you know, sort of um, a whole scene that um, was super special. I mean, the, the bands that came out of that were awesome. But I never was that huge of a fan of, of Husker Du. I mean, it, you know, we liked them and appreciated them because they were kind of doing the same thing we were doing, which was just hustling to be a band and get gigs and play shows and stuff like that. We all yes. had that in common, you know. 
Yeah, absolutely. And did um, did I know because from the UK we obviously get we really romanticise about parts of America, but obviously Prince is another just another person in the city did all time did that sort of ever you know did you ever go and see prince live and think i mean that's quite interesting what you know he- yeah i saw i saw him play you know a few different times i think everyone saw him play at different times but i don't remember any of us being together and watching prince at any one point but what was cool about it and the whole scene really was that even he was part of what we were all doing um, not because he was famous, but it was like, it was a strange unspoken thing. Everyone in our, in our city that was in a band, a musician, everyone, you know, was feeding off of each other one way or the other, whether musically or scene wise or hanging out or friends and all this stuff. It was a very tight knit kind of camaraderie and healthy competition. I mean, everyone was competing with the same crowd because that's, you know, a lot of us hadn't, it took a while for all of us to slowly get out of town and play shows outside of Minneapolis, but um, everyone fighting for the same crowd in a way. It led to a lot of um, sort of cross-pollinization of sounds and, and you know, aesthetics and things like that, that I made it really super special. And when I yes. look at it back, when I look at it now and I think about it, um, there's just so many memories that I have of like just certain things that happened that were super special and that, you know, you would only really understand if you were there. Yes. I would imagine a zeitgeist moment really in in that sort of moment, isn't it really? I guess. Yeah. So so when you came to record, um, let it, let it be, what was the atmosphere like with the band at that stage? Was this still sort of, you know, like, was it still feeling like things were going well or were they kind of, yeah. yeah, we were we were we were starting to you know play play out of town and starting to draw crowds and stuff like that. Small, albeit small, but we were getting somewhere. And um, you know, we knew we were growing something. We knew we were you know we were we were doing something that people liked. I mean, that was basically it. People were buying our records, um, and for a small um, a small label as Twin Tone was. Um, you know, everything was going in the right direction. So by, by let it be, we were con- there was a confidence there, I think, in, uh, in what we were doing. Um, we'd already been playing lots of stuff, with, you know, sh- doing shows with REM, things like that, while they were kind of blowing up. So it was a lot of, you know, kind of building. I think, I think the one thing at that point that kind of really kind of screwed with us a bit was just that um, we were still sort of... Um, God, how do I put it? Sort of a, an awkward bunch where, and to put it simply, where other bands that were coming up at the same time, be it REM or, um, uh, gosh, like REM would be the first, the, I'll just keep it at that. <laughs> REM, things like that. They, other bands that we were coming up with were getting more successful because they were able to play the game better. They were able to, you know, talk to the adults that were selling the records on the record company side of things. They were able to shake hands with the executives and all stuff. We just couldn't, we couldn't get that part down so much. So I think that we, I mean, that's, we shot ourselves in the foot in a lot of ways, but it also was part of our thing. It was part of like, we didn't want to be part of the establishment, even though we wanted to sell records and we wanted to play for more people. It was just, it was kind of, and when you, when you get in that mindset, that's how you end up like a band like the replacements. It's like, you don't want to conform. You don't want to be part of 
this thing that everyone's doing, the MTV thing was really kind of repugnant to us in a way, making these these videos when you're pretending to play your song and pretending to play a show. It's like, what the hell is that? Like, you know, really went to, you know, make our first video kicking and screaming. I mean, really just wasn't our thing. But that said, where all the other bands were getting good at that and playing the game, REM, you know, succeeded and, you know, uh, I think well beyond, um, well beyond us because of that, in a way. We weren't able to really conform in a way that was detrimental. Yes, it was quite tricky because I know The Clash wouldn't go on top of The Pops, which was this very popular program. The Smiths wouldn't make a video, even though it's like you've got to make a video. So it's a very difficult one. But I think with certain bands, and you mentioned R.E.M., but there was also claim that came to mind of people like U2 and The Police. They had these kind of managers who dealt with that side of business with ruthless efficiency, with the big bucks in their eye, and almost the band were able to be shielded by these kind of quite extreme characters or, or, or sort of very professional characters like Miles Copeland. I can't remember the REM manager, but I know he was referred to as the fifth member, I think. But I guess it's that that kind of that part of the gig, isn't it, where, where you just have somebody who's who just does the business for the band. Yeah. And we, you know, for all practical purposes, we had Peter as that guy, as that man for us. But um, in a way, he wasn't a conformist. He, he couldn't do it either. I mean, he, he'd be the first one to tell you, you know, he's a lovely guy and really great and easy to get along with. But he wasn't the guy that really bought into that shit either. Like, so we were kind of in a way being led down the road. And he was kind of our, our leader in that regard. So we were kind of, you know, it kind of turned out, we all kind of came from the same, we ended up being from the same background because that's kind of where, you know, where he was leading us in a way. I don't know. And I don't know that if we'd had a Stuart Cope or, a, you know, Ian Copeland or whatever, I don't know if we had ever had someone like that, if we would have been able to do what he was able to do with the police and that, and, you know, bring them to that level that they got to. I think uh, we might have poo-pooed all that right at the gate anyway, because, Again, I think in our own way, we were kind of above that. You know, yes. we thought we were, you know, we thought that's, you know, that's for fucking girls, whatever. <laughs> you know, what I mean, we just kind of like poo pooed it in a way that we missed the boat. You know yes. what I mean? Um, well, that's you know, we're a little late to embrace that. And then the ideas that we had for videos were kind of, you know, dodgy at best, you know. <laughs> when you came to your 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 next album which is um titled tim there's another track on there here comes a regular can you remember recording that particular track no because it was done when i was not in the studio right paul did that paul did that live you know when i was not there i don't think anyone was there i think in fact it might have only been him and peter in the room with tommy early when he did that because i uh there were all kinds of drama and stuff that went around with that record that, um, you know, it's a miracle that song even came out of it, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, it was a, I think it was a fight or flight kind of moment, you know, when he went and recorded that. I think he really felt like he needed to get it out, get it out of him. And um, he called Peter up and there was a bit, they were on a bit of the outs at that point. There's a whole story behind that, that you could read in Peter's memoir at some point. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yes. So was that, was that the kind of the moment that album after let it be, was that the album that felt like things had just fallen off the wagon? A little bit. 
I mean, we were, I mean, we were touring a lot. I mean, the moment, from the moment I dropped out of school, it seemed like we were touring all the time, playing shows and building our thing. And by the time we got to, um, you know, recording Tim, there wasn't, there weren't a whole lot of extra tracks for that record because like I said, we were touring so much, there wasn't really a whole lot of time to write new stuff, I think for Paul even, but um Yes, but yeah, but yeah. And were you but, kind of aware of bands like Green on Red coming through, and um, I don't know, they might be giants, and those sort of, I don't know, slightly alt country bands. Mm, they might be giants, weren't? But um, Green yeah. on Red, they had that little bit of a Neil Young vibe, didn't they? Yeah, and you know what? When we started making, you know, Please to Meet Me is when we first heard about them because uh, Jim Dickinson had worked a bit with them, I think, and I think that's uh, where that all came from from us. That's how they came on the radar a bit there. But um, I think I think more than anything, the you know there was always a bit of singer songwriter, uh, you know, music going on in the van playlist. Like when we'd be driving to places. I mean, it got beaten to death how 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 much we played, uh, like um, uh, how much. Um, oh, what's his? What's I, I blank on his name? But it's almost like a post-traumatic stress disorder <laughs> artist <laughs> hank williams i mean hank williams was always being played in the band to the point where like it took me years to be able to listen to hank williams after we broke up because it was just always on but um <laughs> you know between between that and you know be, between me hating country music for so long because of that and my mom's record collection i'll tell you a funny anecdote about that when when my you know, my mom, when Stray Cats put out their first record, they came they came to Minneapolis to play a show and they were playing at a strip bar. And, and I was able to get us tickets for seeing the Stray Cats at said strip bar <clears> and took my and told my mom, I said, Mom, I got tickets for the Stray Cats. She was liking the single that she'd heard on the radio. And, she was, and I said, I can get us tickets, but you got to take me because it's at a strip bar. It's at Duffy's. And so my mom takes me to see, you know, uh, the Stray Cats at a strip bar. and forever changes mom like mom like just gave up on conway twitty all that crap all about stray cats so much so that like when i lived in la she'd come out and visit me and we'd go see brian setzer's orchestra and stuff and watch all the dancers it was really it's a funny connection i have with my mom but oh that's fantastic yes but i, I but i you know i um throughout you know the years of traveling around with the replacement stuff there was always country music and bob dylan and just different things of the singer songwriter nature that were always a part of it it was always part of paul's background it was always part of mine just because i was there yes into my my uh you know dna but um you know um it was always kind of present and you know this record that i just did it's really not anything different in one way or the other than anything i've done um in terms of style wise, it's just that I did it more stripped down. Yes. The, you know, this 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 Cowboys and Campfire is way more stripped down to the, the basic songwriter elements in a way. You know, it's like, you know, a bash and pop records or even replacements records. A lot of those records, those started, the songs started on acoustic guitar a lot of them, or electric guitar in a basement somewhere. Um so it's not all that different. It's just the way I approach you reapproach it. And so even when you go back to listen to, you know, later replacement stuff, you can hear some of that singer songwriter stuff kind of coming through more as the, uh, you know, as we got older and stuff. But, um, 
the way we, you know, wrote, the way Paul wrote, et cetera, that kind of always stuck with me. And so this record that I did, just to cut to it, um, is more of a stripped down version of, you know, the same thing I've always been doing, which is, you know, writing songs, whether I turn it into a rock song or whatever, they always, a lot of them always still start off on acoustic guitar. You speed them up, you put them to an electric guitar amp, whatever. They start off the same way. This is just closer to that. The nucleus of when you know the song started. Yes. So with the with the new the new album that you've done with this is with Chip, isn't it? Yeah, Chip. Rob, yep. Yep. When did when did you start writing and and sort of thinking of doing this this as a sort of an album? Was that something that was kind of started during that dreaded lockdown period or sort of post? Uh, way way before that, I met him fifteen years ago. He was he's the uncle of my second ex wife, if you will. Um, and so I moved to Philadelphia area when second ex-wife gets pregnant with little one and uh, meet Uncle Chip. And he and I become real tight friends quick. Both, you know, he hadn't played guitar in a while at this point because he'd had a neck injury. But I got him playing guitar again and we just kind of hit it off really well. So cut to I'm traveling with Guns N' Roses, uh, you know, a lot living in Philadelphia when I'm not on the road with them. But I set up shop in his basement. Uh, of his house, I finished up a solo record called One Man Mutiny there, mm-hmm. where he where he helped, uh, he played on some of the tracks and helped write some of that. And then, you know, we continued to write and play together on some of the stuff that ended up being that second Bash and Pop record that I did. Um, and in, in, in during all this time, when I had downtime, when I wasn't on tour with Guns N' Roses or Soul Asylum, he and I would just get in the van and go play backyard shows or whatever um, for fun. Yes. And, you know, it started to turn into a thing where we were making money at it and starting to having fun with it. And it was really low maintenance. It's like of the gigs to play. These are my favorite because they really are fun to just play to the fans and you don't have all the other bullshit to deal with. No, so you don't have, you don't have, to, you don't have so much gear to try and set yeah. up. Exactly that, and you know, a myriad of other things. So, um, you know, he, him and I have been doing this for years. And so, when the lockdown happens, when we really kind of started to put the the finishing touches on this record, basically, and um, coming out of that, I mean, we would have put this record out last fall if I hadn't walked away from Fat Possum Records with it. Um, we just had a difference of opinions of what should happen after they had been with me, <laughs> nurturing this thing up to the end end of the cycle of, to the point where we're just going to put it out they changed their idea of what they want it to be and i didn't agree so i walked away from it and so since we put it out with cobra side and did it on our own this spring yes but, blimey but, that's quite a drama. i think was um was it fat possum you said was that kind of was that rl burnside was he on that label i, I do believe yeah i, I do believe. I believe yes because so. on with your the 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 the, the one man mutiny this is kind of a much more of a, a rock sound isn't it this is this is a kind of yeah. much more of a kind of a yeah. b- bigger bigger production so basically the songwriting is the same but sometimes you'll go for the rock side and this one you just think let's keep it stripped down keep it basic basically yes that's that in a nutshell that's kind of what this record represents in a way plus plus it has a lot more um input from chip in, in, in the musical department than my solo records would a lot of a lot of times i get sort of focused on a thing on how I want to be. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's usually just all me. I, I, with Chip, we work, we kind of have a good partnership in that regard where we've worked together 
on most everything in that in a productive way. Yeah. Yes, and with the songs, are quite a lot of them autobiographical. I know everyone would ask you that, but is there is there quite a lot of your own self in that mm, in those? Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe a little bit. Maybe not. Um, no, to be perfectly honest with you, some of it um, intrinsically is autobiographic, but autobiographical. But a lot of times, I I, I stretch it to include other storylines of other stories I've heard or or whatnot. I try to, you know, in my songwriting, I try to be as inclusive as possible so people that listen to it can either relate um, one way or the other. Or, um, or or not really, I suppose. But um, I try to lure them in by, you know, everyone's got some similar kind of baggage that, you know, <laughs> that I might be writing about or whatever, you know, and I try to, my story, try to keep it our story, you know. Much yes, as absolutely. And did you enjoy sort of bringing in other instruments like the ukulele and, and um, sort of other kind of percussion? Yeah, you know, I've always messed around with different instrumentation. What was really cool that um, it really wasn't until the very end when we're mixing it that we realized it was really something special was the string section in uh, Hey Man. When we when Chip and I sat down after we got the mixes back from our buddy Justin who mixed it, we sat down, listened to the record top to bottom, and when Hey Man came on, we just kind of looked at each other and went, whoa, like, we did that? Like, that's us? Like, whoa, cool. Like, Blue, we kind of blew our own minds with that after we kind of walked away and came back. So kind of a special moment. And for all practical purposes, if no one ever bought this goddamn record, we still have that moment together that meant a lot to us. And that's kind of, you know, the end of the day, really, that's all you get. I mean, if you're lucky enough to be successful at this, I've been lucky enough to be successful at it one way or the other since I was a kid. But if you're lucky enough to have that moment where you're sitting with your songwriting partner and both look at each other like, wow, you kind of blown each other's mind grapes a little bit with what you've done. It's like, we've got that. That's better than the payday. I mean, yes. that's, I mean, that's the best gift you can get from it. And I've got, I've gotten that with chip on several records now. And most importantly, this one. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it does sound, you know, I've really enjoyed listening to it. And I've also enjoyed listening to some of your earlier work as well, which is sort of goes back, you know, for decades, really. So yeah. your your sort of ability to keep going is, is quite impressive, because the one thing I've noticed doing all these interviews is that most people get to a point where they think, I just can't do this anymore. But have your, your energy and enthusiasm seems to keep bouncing along. Have, do you have a certain personality type that can just kind of brush things away or or kind of keep rolling on? You know, I must. I must because before I got on the phone with you, I was stressed out about a certain thing about what I do, <laughs> about some shows coming up that I may change. But um, ultimately, I have a drive, an inner drive. And I think um, I'm always, you're always chasing that moment, that moment that Chip and I had, I'll be forever chasing that moment again. I'll be ever forever chasing the moment when I played on Stephen Colbert's TV show and with Bash and Pop, you're always kind of like, that was such a cool moment. You always want to have it again. And a lot of times what happens is you don't have that moment again. You have something else that's different, but another moment. And so, um, because it's still, I'm still in the experimental phase of all this. I don't really know what the fuck I'm doing. I don't have a direction. <laughs> I don't have a direction. I don't have 
I'm going to make a disco record. I'm going to make a country record. I'm going to, I don't have any of that crap. I just do it on the fly. And um, it's always kind of like opening up a Christmas present when I'm onto a new song, like, I, like in the middle of the night last night, I, you know, I woke up and was like, I had this piece of a song that I've been messing with. And now I had another piece of my sleep that I'm going to put together today. And I, you're always chasing those bits where, you know, you want it. The outcome is like you're chasing this, this grand moment that sometimes eh, it's a fart in the elevator, or it just turned into something really special that may be only special to you, but it's, I got that. And I, that doesn't go away. Like I, I won't ever, I won't, I'll be doing this till I'm dead. Yes. And, because I just have that that drive, I guess. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I get. Did you see the the uh, the, the Beatles film, the one that um, Peter? God, I can't remember his name. Is it Jackson who did? Um, you know, all the those those mega mega movies. But he did Let It Be, didn't he? The you know right. the the recording of the Beatles going into the studio without anything and and having to record an album and just seeing that creative process i just wondered if you'd seen that film and all that eight hours it was only eight hours it's it's in three or four sections i just wondered how you kind of if you had seen it how you kind of related to the the way that they sort of just started a song and how they developed it you know i haven't seen it funny enough but from what you're describing already i can say that's exactly it like i you know, when I'm off the phone with you, I'm going to eat my lunch and I'm going to go out to my studio and monkey around with some stuff. And, and that's basically what I'll be doing is I'll be chasing parts to a song and throwing stuff together. I might come home empty handed. I might come home with something that's really exciting. Uh, and again, you know, as long as I still enjoy it. And this is where the this is where, you know, this is where, you know, you get your your head chopped off one way or the other. Um, if you really mean it and you keep doing it and you keep chasing it, you're going to do it to your death. I mean, that's just yes. kind of the way it is. Uh, and if you just give up on it, then what are you going to do? <laughs> so um, I don't have enough. I don't have anything else that has my uh, inspiration, like, like writing songs and playing music. I still like performing, whether it's a backyard or a fucking Coliseum or a stadium. I don't really care. I like what I do and I enjoy it still. So as long as I've got that in me, I'll keep playing too, you know. Yes. And with um just going back after your replacements, you're in, is it passion, passion, passion pop? That was kind of that was formed by you, wasn't it, in 92? Was that kind yeah. of a was that an experience and a chap that you felt really positive looking back on it as a sort of way to break away from the replacements? Yeah, I mean, to be to be frank about all that, we knew we knew. Um, at the end of the, the Don't Tell a Soul tour, I knew we knew because we've been talking about it on the bus and uh, all this stuff for a long time of that whole touring cycle that Paul really wanted to get more involved in the producing part of it, really wanted to kind of mess with some different textures and do different things. And we knew that pretty much All Shook Down was going to be our last record, one, and knew that he was really going to take more of an active role in kind of guiding that record. And I was kind of like, Hey man, I'm cool. I'm totally cool with that. Have anyone you want to play bass on it, all that stuff. The stones did it. Why wouldn't we do it? You know, that kind of mentality went to it. If we get, if you want to have strings on a thing, you want to have this, that let's do all the stuff you want. And, and I was very supportive of that. I don't know that Chris was, as supportive of that because I think he didn't like the idea of someone else playing drums 
one way or the other. I didn't really have that. I had more of the support of like, yeah, whoever, man. Um, even though when it got to, when push came to shove, I kind of pushed myself back into it and played bass on a couple of things that just were not happening. I just kind of said, that's great. You got John that playing bass on it, but that's not that this, no, give me the bass. You know, I took over <laughs> for a few things and may stamped them in. And it's like, okay, now it's a song um, that works. But um, you know, at the, at the end of that cycle, going into all shook down, I was already writing that bash and pop record and other things around it. So by the time that record was done, we knew two things. We knew we we're going to tour behind it. I knew Paul was going to go solo and I knew I was going to make a bash and pop record or a record with a band. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of bash and pop yet, but we both knew we were going to go our separate ways and it was time and it felt right. And I was confident enough with what I was doing to turn it into the record company. And they said, yeah, we'll pick up the option. And they made, you know, they supported me making the record. They, they gave me the money to make the record. And then they just left it to me to <laughs> go from there. They didn't really <laughs> do a lot of promoting on that uh, and picking up from there. But, um, you know, we knew going, we both knew before, you know, pretty much, you know, that, that All Shook Down was going to be our probably last record and that we're going to move on different ways. We've been talking yes. about different things already at that point. Yeah. And as, as, as you've sort of already been sort of recording for so long and been in sort of playing music and seeing different trends, how was it for you? Because in the UK, you know, that late 80s, there was the sort of the, the rise of ecstasy and the dance scene, and then there was the Seattle grunge scene. But as a musician, how do you cope with those kind of like, my God, there's a whole new wave of a new scene, and how do you kind of try and keep interested or relevant and and keeping your own kind of, um, I don't know, fans going or your, you know, people interested in you? You know, that's a really good question because um, I've, I went, I went from very much, you know, I, the grunge period was way uh, above my head. I didn't get any of it. I thought it was just sort of, you know, flannel shirt and metal is what I really referred to it as. Um, yes. And, and, and it still, even to this day, still sounds like that to me. I never got on with it. Um, it wasn't until after the kind of grunge thing died down that those bands were doing other things that I kind of was like, oh, that's interesting. That's kind of cool. It, you know, but the whole, the whole heroin, you know, sort of metal alternative mishmash really was like, Ugh, to me. But having said that, I mean, I started... I went from I went from the replacements who we never we never really tried to pick up on other genres that were becoming famous. We didn't like try and become a disco band because that's what was all the rage. We didn't really try and do it, but we did acknowledge it and in some ways pull ideas, you know, somewhat to kind of incorporate them where where it seemed like they worked or where we felt comfortable and liked the vibe, like. Um, you know, there's a song like, you know, ask me questions on don't tell a soul that, you know, they was really trying to be like a disco song in a way. And I was not a, I don't funk slap and I never did. That mm. became kind of a thing where we tried to incorporate you know, different things and it didn't work. Um, tried too hard on that, in fact, but I kind of, when, when the replacements broke up, I started listening more to what was going on, not in to, not in a way of like, I want to be like that or like this, I was starting to listen to things that were interesting about, say, the grunge bands, Nirvana, and all these things. Listening to, but really, what didn't it really, what really got me kind of going was 
after that, like Queens of the Stone Age, when that when they came about, blew my head off. I mean, I was like, that's fucked up. And it was cool and musical still, but really like wacky. Like I told you, you know, I got turned on to Captain Beefheart at a really young age. That kind of meshing of textures and sound and kind of beating up music. I started getting into different things like that and sort of, you know, not trying to be like anyone, but it started to come into my mind. So I never really felt like emulating any of it any of this stuff, but um, started, you know, appreciate and take uh, and get inspired by different, you know, different bands, textures and, you know, genres and stuff like that. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to not when it's, you know, it's thrown your face so much and, you know, you can't help but find pieces of, you know, even the worst crap out there. There's pieces of just about everyone's music out there that's something, you know, tangible about it that I might, might find, you know. Yes, but there was the kind of those other bands or artists like, is it Uncle Tupelo? You know, those kind of old country music started to appear as well. Did you start sort of being kind of intrigued with some of those kind of sounds and artists and sort of lyrics? Strangely, no. I mean, I liked Wilco right out of the gate um, and Jeff Tweedy and, and, and all of that. Um, we played shows with Uncle Tupelo and I don't remember them. I don't remember anything about them, to be honest with you. Um but that doesn't mean anything. Um, uh, that whole no depression scene again. It was it was the same uh, to me as like uh, the grunge scene. And you kind of and, and where I come from, you know, you got to kind of put yourself on my shoes. We were coming up in a hardcore rock scene as the replacements. We were only playing our stuff really fast. We weren't trying to be a hardcore punk band. We didn't have the tattoos. We weren't really part of that skinhead, angst, angry young man thing. We just happened to play our songs really fast. So we never fit that genre, but we were kind of thrown into that a bit. Um, growing up in different things like, you know, um, watching different genres, we never really stole from any of that stuff. And so whether it, was, whether it was, you know, the grunge period or the no depression scene, that stuff was, you know, Lori Barbero put it perfectly. It's like sleepy music for tired people. You know, that's how <laughs> what she referred to it as. What's always stuck in my head is like, that's what a lot of that crap sounded like to me. It was sleepy music for tired people, but it also had its own place and it had a whole genre that I didn't understand. I, I got bored by it and thought it was really just boring music. I still liked upbeat pop, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I like pop music, you know, by and large, you know, from, yes. we, I, you know, one of my favorite bands growing up was the squeeze, you know, I love them a lot. Saw them many times. And, um, yes, you know, up, up the junction was a classic, really. Totally. Totally. Still for cats. Um, we loved them really. And when you, when you were on your next band, perfect, you were on a, a label called medium cool records, weren't you? Yeah. So yeah. how did Peter, was that Peter's label again? Yeah, it was. It was his label. Um, I can't remember how he ended up merging that with um, New So was, was Peter kind of, he wasn't British then, because that's kind of no. medium cool. Was a, I thought it was a label that had all these kind of quirky indie bands from the UK. You know, um don't really know a lot about that aspect of it but no peter's from minneapolis um again i mean he you know he was always into different things and good qual i mean good i mean he's a um 
as one of those people, uh, it's surprising he never played an instrument. He's such a musical lover. You know, I've met I've met a few of them that music is so much a part of their. I mean, they breathe it, live it, feel it every moment of every day. He's one of the few people I've met. Seymour Stein was another one. Um, equally, equally um, interesting people in that in that regard. Although Seymour Stein, you know did more did more and became more successful and all that than peter ever has but that's the, the those kind of people that really bring a lot to the table because they live and breathe it and when they tell you something's great you got to check this check out this band here and throws it on the record player you listen i mean you you know that if peter likes it i gotta listen because there's something about it and most more often than not, it was it would be a true thing. And so Seymour Stein, Peter Jasperson, a friend of mine, Laurel Stearns, who I know from back in the day, uh, Kelly Spencer, another friend of mine from back in the day, just people that really music is their whole life, but they never were musicians. You know? Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's my tirade about Peter and <laughs> he sounds like a legend. Yes. Yeah, so. Oh, he's totally a legend. Yeah. And working, you work with the producer Jim Dickerson as well for your for the album. Yeah, he's a week. Was it? What, did he bring a lot to the recession recording? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim Jim brought a lot to the session, and he, you know, Memphis brought a lot to the session. You know, um, you know, he'd worked. You know, he his work with Big Star probably had a lot to do with why we were there, um, because we, you know, we loved the Big Star stuff at that point. We're getting turned on to it at that point, I suppose. And, uh, you know, he'd done a lot of things. He was a bit, bit cantankerous and a bit of a curmudgeon, but um, super, I mean, super interesting. Had played with a lot of greats and, you know, had stories for days. <laughs> but also, you know, a great producer in that he had all that going for him. He knew how to make, get, he knew how to put the right pieces into place to make you sound good. He would take care of the producing part and tell the stories and keep you interested and do all this stuff. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a great. And you know what I got out of that is I still got Luther Dickinson and Cody Dickinson as my good buddies. So yes, well that's amazing. That's amazing. Were you a bit amazed when you got the the call to join Guns and Roses, sort of seventy ninety seven ninety eight? It was it was funny how that even happened. I wasn't I, my friend Josh Freeze was playing was playing drums for them at that point. He was already in it, and Duff had quit. And Josh was at a rehearsal hall that I was rehearsing at with my band Perfect. And he was like, "You should come check it out. Maybe come out and jam with me. We don't have a bass player right now." I was like, "Come play." And you know, and I was like, "Yeah, whatever." So I learned up a few songs, and I went out there and did it more a, as a laugh on a lark just to just to see what was going on see what this is all about and i went out and played and basically got the call the next day you want to join the band it's like well that sounds kind of weird but i you know talked to axel about it and um that he was going to continue on as guns and roses without slash duff izzy because this is this was what he does. This is this is my I'm I got the name. I'm fucking still Guns N' Roses and I'm doing this. I was like, that's pretty ballsy. I'm in. <laughs> you know, I thought fucking nothing more punk rock than that. He means it. He's the voice behind it. And he really wants to continue on one way or the other and just has different ideas about what it should be than those guys. And I kind of bought into it. And for 17 years I bought into it. Yes. And that was amazing. Did that did that kind of set you up for life did that experience i mean was that 
you know, something that you thought, thank God for that. That was my pension plan. Or does it not work like that? It definitely didn't work like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was a great, it was a great experience. I've got nothing but good things to say. Um, It was great. And it did, it, it, you know, it was a really good move for me. It was, um, it was a, you know, many, many, you know, lessons learned good and bad. Um, and uh, yeah, absolutely. Could you, I mean, with the tour, you know, you did tours with them. I mean, was that kind of on a scale which you'd never experienced before? Was there something kind of quite like, God, this is, this have to pinch yourself to think I'm going out as Guns N' Roses? You, you know, I, I, I never bought into it. I pretty much was very aware that I was the odd man out in the whole scenario. Um, but that I had, I brought something to the table. I knew I brought something to the table, but I really did. I was aware that I'm the odd man out. I even tested it early on. I'd get off stage and I'd walk right to the middle of the crowd, right to the back door and see if anyone ever, and no one ever, you know, caught me and, you know, noticed me walking by. It wasn't, <laughs> it was it wasn't until I left the band and Slash and Duff came back that I'd walk through the crowd and people go, hey, Tommy, hey, Tommy. And, and that's a true story. I saw them twice. Uh, after they got back together with those guys with a friend of mine in both places I got recognized more in the audience watching them play than when I was in the band <laughs> yes because yeah. you 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 sort of did quite a lot with the the album that came out didn't you Jack yeah. um, you know yeah. was that what was that kind of set what were those sessions like they were bananas it was um really I mean one of the my one of my greatest takeaways from all that really was uh um, you know, f- being sort of forced to write with five, six other people that all come from completely different backgrounds, have different egos and capabilities that they bring or not to the table. But coming up with a record out of that was a miracle. And it was a really great learning experience for me. I think it was probably a great learning experience for everyone. And the, the one thing that really came out of that that no one really noticed or knows is that Axel really is a great producer for that. He pre- he produced, he made sure that everyone had um, a bit of equity in every song, because I think what, I think maybe if I project, if I may project here, I think one of the problems with a band like Guns N' Roses originally was that everyone wants their song to be sung by Axel. Everyone wants their song to be this. And so it was his thing. If I got to sing your song, you got to play on his songs because I want to sing his song. It's like there was a whole game that had to be played about that. And I think with us, when everyone, when it was just him and this whole new cast of characters, like he made everyone have a little at stake in every song so that they all, every, we'd all want to play everyone's, each, each one's song, you know? Yes. Uh, it was a whole thing. And I was a true producer in there uh, that made that happen. Yeah, it must have just been a, I mean, you know, your reflections on that must feel quite interesting. And it, like anything in life, you know, at the time you're just in it, but then as, as you know, the years pass, you think, oh, that, that was quite a chapter, you know, that's. Yeah, totally. I totally look back like that. That's look amazing. Back. But you also yeah. say managed to sort of layer it with, with moment, um, with a period with soul asylum as well. So did you, were you just very good at keeping a diary at this stage of sort of what commitments you had at certain places? You, you know, I mean, guns would go out for long periods of time and then be on hiatus for long periods of time. And when Carl Mueller passed from soul asylum, um, it just worked out 
you know, we'd all grown up together. I know those guys from, you know, high school and went to high school with Dave. Um, so just, uh, you know, having that background with those guys, it was like, I, they wanted me to play. I was like, sure, you can, I can only play, you know, when guns is on hiatus and it just sort of worked out that way for like five, six years, you know? Yes. And then, and then when those kind of came to an end, this is where you, did you feel like that's it? I'm going to really focus on my solo career now. I'm not going to, unless some brilliant offer comes along. Did that feel quite a, a new chapter when, you know, sort of from 2011? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I had to walk away from guns for personal reasons, um, going through a nasty divorce and all this stuff. And I had a toddler um, that needed me to take care of her. Um, it, it was good for me to, to call it at that point, but obviously it was a great thing that I did because it, caught, it forced Axel to go be an ACDC for a while, one way or the other. That had nothing but great things for him. I mean, that was a great move on his part, but also I think he got a lot out of that, that, you know, I, I'd be interested to hear him talk about that someday, you know, down the road when he reflects on that, because I think, uh, you know, him being a member of someone else's band for the first time, as opposed to everyone being a member of his band, I think he probably couldn't have slipped by him without going, wow, so this is what it's like. You know, right. someone else's fan you know so it was kind of it was, it was kind of a cool thing and then you know obviously it, it pushed them back to you know duff and, and slash and i think that's great i think he owes me i think he owes me a cup of coffee over that one actually <laughs> but uh um you know i look back at it and you know it was it was a good time for me to start focusing on my own my own stuff you know then you know yeah, so when you were the the album that that we mentioned, one one man mutiny, was that kind of a feeling of like, right, that's it, a new chapter. We're going to start. We're going to start a new page on this one. Well, that was actually I was still in the midst of both being in both bands when I put that one out. That was sort of a, that was a side project, really. But it really, you know, I mean, I I meant it and was aiming to make a decent record and stuff. Um, but yeah, that was, that was, you know, it was a side project to what I was doing all, you know, in my day. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Time, you know? And I know this seems like a long time ago, but when lockdown came around at this beginning, at the beginning of this decade, did that give you a t an opportunity to sort of take stock and kind of reflect about how you're going to tackle this next period of life? You know, I, I not really because I really you know like like so many of us I actually kind of got dark and kind of depressed and I forced myself to do things uh, in the studio to just kind of not lose track because we were almost done making the you know the we were we were more than halfway done with making the Cowboys and the Campfire record during that lockdown period it was really like I had to force myself to kind of stay into it because I had you know it was so dark for everyone but um you know, through that came on the other side of it and, you know, saw the light. And that's when we really, you know, sort of put the finishing touches on things once we came out of that dark tunnel of COVID, you know, yes. and, and uh, you know, it was a long, it took a long time to finish that record up because of my personal things going on and because of Chip's personal things going on, moving and all these different things. So, yes. So yeah. once, once this is kind of, and you've got some live dates. Have you got anything next on the horizon that's um, kind of bubbling away in the background? Well, not not that I know of, but I'm starting to, you know, we're we're just we're just starting to kind of tour behind this record. But as I say that, 
like I said earlier, it's like I'm going to go to the studio and start working on some new stuff. I don't know what it's going to be for me, any any number of the other bands I you know work with or whatever. But I'm going to I'm feeling creative right now, so kind of a good thing. I can tour and go play shows, and I can go to my studio and I can you know be creative and come up with stuff. It's kind of a good time for me right now. It's quite funny because there's a lot of interviews I've been doing with people who who suddenly after years of being in different bands and different scenes have now sort of become a duo of some description. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It is the rise of the duo, isn't it? You know, and I mean, yeah. it's, it's I think it just keeps life simple, you know, like the writing, the recording, then you do the tour. It's like, yeah, this one works quite well. We can keep an eye on how much it's going to cost and make sure that yeah. it's not going to get too messy. And, um, you know, we it's, can just... Exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a very low-maintenance, you know, um, agreeable way of doing this. I mean, I, I'll, I, I'm always going to enjoy performing one way or the other, but it isn't the easiest thing to be doing at this particular juncture in my life. Um, but, uh, you know... As long as I enjoy it, I'll still go out and do it. But I get a good mix of, you know, I'm going to go be creative today. I'm going to do some shows this weekend, you know. <laughs> and, with the, and, with the, and with the live shows you've done recently, do you sort of mix other periods of your life in the in the set? I do. I do. I, even, with, even with the Cowboys and the Campfire, I include some of the other songs Chip and I've written together that were on either Bash and Pop or my solo stuff. Um, so I, I tour, I tour at the moment, I tour with Cowboys, which we've added an upright bass player, Chops, yes. who played on the record as well. Um, we've added him to the lineup. So it's three of us. Um, we still, you know, travel, travel pretty, um, uh, pretty small scale, um, and do our little shows. But on the other side of that, you know, um, you know, I might work up another fashion pop record. You know, I never know. I, I I like being able to do different things. So, you know, I just kind of, as long as I feel like uh, being creative and I've got enough uh, gas in the tank, I'll do whatever, you know, whatever <laughs> feels good. And if you could have just whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out, is there anything in particular you'd have gone, oh, yes, that would have been a good thing to have been told, even if you ignored it? Um, yeah, wow. A lot of things, a lot of things. Um, none of them I can really repeat right now, but uh, <laughs> you know, um, it ain't. It isn't an easy way to 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 live. I mean, you got. I mean, by all accounts, um, you know, people go through life, you know, having day jobs and working, you know, working particular in particular fields where they've got a schedule and all this, that, and the other thing. When you're a professional musician one way or the other you're kind of making it up as you go along and lucky very lucky for me that i'm capable of still going out and making a living at this um, yes i don't know what i would be you know doing if i if i weren't able to make a living at this i'm sure because there was there was a couple of times when i actually had jobs where i was you know broke and i had to get work and those actually were times when i really flowered because i wasn't leaning on my music to make a buck you know that kind of thing but uh you know, I'm very lucky to be able to do what I want and how I want to do it. And, you know, I get I get lucky that way. Yes, absolutely. Well, look, Tommy, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. And I'll um I'll forward this interview to your the I think it's Gary, isn't it, who's sort of set yeah. this up. Dear old yep, Gary. Yep. We love Gary. Yeah. But yes, sure. well, thank you. Well, again, hope you have a nice lunch and have a lovely yeah. day. And um, yes, and hopefully the smoke won't be too bad for your lungs. Yeah, thank you so much, man. You have yeah. a great rest of your day also. We'll see you okay. down the road.
Yes, absolutely. And thanks again for the album. It's been brilliant. Take care. See you. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with Tommy Stinson. Um, I will give you the link below in the notes. A massive thank you to Tommy with his new album that has just come out, which is uh, titled Cowboys in the Campfire. has a new single as well called Dream. So that's available here, there and everywhere as album, CD and digital download as well. Anyway, check it out. If you want to contact me, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. You can on um, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show and send me a message. Make it positive and groovy. <laughs> Life's too short. I just don't need any negative vibes, ma'am. Um, also, all these interviews have been archived. That's true. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show and you will find them. There's a lot of them. So enjoy. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>